people are asking questions about what, what does this company stand for? What is this company doing? What social issues are involved in? It's our colleagues, retention, attraction, and it's consumers, right? What does this brand stand for, right? What does this beer stand for? What does this company stand for? So all those questions, the more you're engaged on that, the bigger competitive advantage you'll have. Welcome to Talking on Tap, ABM Bab's podcast series. I'm Elaine McCrimmon, Global Director of Reputation and External Engagement. During UNGA and Climate Week, we held at our offices here in Manhattan a discussion on the shifting role of business in a VUCA world. VUCA being volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Certainly a world that we live in right now. I'm very excited to bring to you that conversation with Chris Coulter, the CEO of Globescan, as he sits down with John Blood, our Chief Legal and Corporate Affairs Officer at ABMBAB, Rob Skinner, the Deputy Director and Chief of Partnerships and Global Engagement at the United Nations, and Chris DeJory, CEO of Leaders on Purpose, to discuss the expectations for companies and how companies can participate in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development adopted in 2015 provides a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future. At its heart are the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which are an urgent call for action by all. So what is the shifting role of business in a VUCA world and how are we progressing on the SDGs? Let's find out. We are sitting in AB InBev's global headquarters in Manhattan during UNGA and Climate Week 2022. And I am thrilled to be here with three remarkable people, which I'll introduce very briefly. Rob Skinner is a very long title, first of all, though. The Deputy Director and Chief of Partnerships, and we're not done yet, and Global Engagement for the United Nations. Hi, Rob. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, we're excited you're here, too. I've been here a few times, and uh, it's always welcoming. And I know ABM have done such a great job uh, working on the SDGs. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. And Krista Giori is the CEO of Leaders on Purpose. What is Leaders on Purpose briefly? We know what the UN has uh, <laughs> God bless you. Yeah. Well. What is Leaders on Purpose? Yeah, not quite as, as famous as the UN. Our focus is really supporting business in the transition to become more sustainable and just through embedding purpose at the core of strategy. So we work with CEOs because CEOs set the strategy for the businesses. We do research and we identify businesses that are at the forefront. And AB InBev has been part of our CEO study and has been engaged with us for many years because of the work that we're doing. So really delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. And John Blood, our host, who is the Chief Legal Counselor and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer of AB InBev. Hi, John. Chris, great to see you and also great to be with the panelists and have some guests in our office as well. So welcome, everyone. Yeah, well-behaved crowd thus far, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So we're having a wonderful conversation on this challenging time we're at in this moment in human history, and what's the role of business in what we call this VUCA world, and and that's a term that the U.S. military has used historically. Volatile, yeah, it's a volatile world. Uncertain, we don't really know what's coming next, and that's a real thing. Complex, 
times 10, the complexity levels. I think we're all feeling the pressure and weight. And then ambiguous. And this ambiguity, I think, is especially fitting for discussion on what the role of business is, because sometimes we don't know who's leading and who's following and how are things going. And that feels like very shifting terrain. And, and that's one of the challenges and the opportunities, of course, of making progress. I wanted to share a few contextual bits of research that we've done at Globescan, just to set the context. And we've been doing this work with the University of Oxford, surveying corporate affairs professionals across the world. And this is part of our corporate affairs survey. And we asked them this very simple question related to how do you think societal expectations for purposeful companies will change? And we can see very significant proportions of the 212 companies surveyed are saying it's coming more of a demand for being purposeful. And it's quite a magnitude and true across all regions and across all sectors. So inside businesses, we are feeling the pressure and sense that expectations externally are moving rapidly and there's more draw and expectation for purpose. If we switch to consumers and what people across the world think, we just finished a survey across 31 countries, 30,000 interviews, and we asked people a very simple but important question on the role of business. And we said, should companies speak out and stand up for a range of issues? And we can see a very significant and for us a surprising percentage of people across the world wanting companies to speak out and stand up for government action on climate change supporting the UN SDGs, promoting democracy, a new important issue and another challenge for companies to play a role in, and then rights of LGBTQ and women rights related to reproductive health, a little bit lower, but still the valence is that there's a high level of support for businesses to play a role. Relatively new, I think a decade ago would be quite different, but we see a dramatic convergence here. So expectations are there. So that's the context. Now we want to hear from each of the panelists and get some reflections on how they see this moment in time, the role of business, and the progress we need to make in this VUCA world. So Rob, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think, Chris, you got hit it just right. I mean, I think that at the UN, we're looking at it and saying, this has to be a multi-sectoral approach to the SDGs. And in fact, going back to the creation of the SDGs, it really was a multi-sectoral approach to the creation. You know, the high-level panel includes Paul Pullman from Unilever, so there was a business voice from the outset. And I think as we're looking at the challenges as you've laid out, we know they've just gotten greater. I mean, COVID set us back. You know, the conflict, the war in Ukraine it is problematic, of course, it's, it's, which has created further exacerbation of the food crisis, which is then connected to, you know, the, the climate crisis because the food crisis exists because we have the, the climate issues, drought and floods causing lack of agricultural production. So it's all connected. It all comes together. And if we don't bring every sector into the conversation, particularly the private sector, to help solve these problems, you know, we're not going to get there. And we're trying to redouble the efforts. And I think this morning at the United Nations, we kicked off the high-level week with the SDG moment, the so-called SDG moment. It was actually 90 moments. It was 90 minutes of talk about the SDGs, why we call it the moment. I'm not quite sure, but we heard that from all leaders that were there, from civil society, business leaders, government leaders, celebrities who are you know, putting their voices behind it to try and raise awareness so we know what the SDGs are and how we're going to get there, how we're going to achieve them, or at least make significant progress by 2030. I mean, so I think you see the United Nations really embracing the fact that we have to bring everybody in. And we don't even like to talk about the sustainable development goals as the UN's SDGs. We like to talk about them as the world's SDGs because the world has to be there and come behind us to solve them. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my current role in global communications and partnerships is bring the communities together to help everyone raise their voices. And I think 
we had a successful effort during COVID-19 where we did bring, you know, all sectors together around something called the Verified Initiative to combat disinformation, which I could talk about more. But we really needed everyone to come behind that because it was such a complicated communications environment. And we had to create these collaborations and partnerships to get voices out there. I think that's exactly what we need to do to take on the whole SDG agenda, bring everyone together, help everyone understand what they are, know what we need to do, educate people, and then take action, really take action. Wonderful. Thanks, Rob. And this moment you're talking about, it, this is because it's halfway through the trajectory of the SDGs or why is the moment the yeah, moment it, now? It's, a, it's an annual event that the General Assembly adopted a resolution to have a moment to reflect on and focus on the SDGs every General Assembly because there's always some issue that's focused on it. Education, obviously, one of the SDGs, an important one, was the focus of a summit today at the UN. And we go into the general debate with all the global leaders coming in tomorrow. But every year we said we need to focus on the SDGs, look at where we are, and make sure we remember that we have to take this on, look at the entire agenda and keep moving. And so it's an annual event. Great. And Krista, what's your take on where we are in this moment? I would agree. I think that I love the stats that you shared and it's certainly something that we see as well. I mean, coming from the business perspective, my background is I spent most of my time at Unilever and, you know, we touch 3 billion people every day with our products and Procter & Gamble, 5 billion, right? So businesses of this size are operating in as many countries as the UN countries. And so when they make change, it's massive, but it's complex and it's difficult. And so we're seeing that more and more of these, we've got 3,600, I think, signed up for science-based targets. We've got investors now committing to $130 trillion towards investing to get to 1.5. And so we're seeing the tides are really shifting and seeing the stats around consumers as well. Business has to be part of this. So. Yeah, I'm 100% behind that. <laughs> and I think you're generally an optimistic person, but are you feeling that optimism in this moment and some of the challenges we're all facing? What's your... Well, yeah, I think that we're facing, it's, it's very complex. I think before we were talking here with the audience, you know, there's a lot of different things that we're seeing. You know, it's been a really difficult year, 2022, with the war in Ukraine and just recovery from COVID. And we've seen a lot of setbacks towards the SDGs. But I think we are seeing the tide shifting. And if we're going to do it, this is the moment. And I do think that people are getting behind it. The employees are voting with their talent. You know, consumers are voting with their dollar. And now we're starting to see policymakers as well come together. So I think that we're lined up to be able to do it. Will we do it? You know, this is on us. I mean, that's why we're here. So I'm, you know, kind of hopeful <laughs> because we have to be. And John, what are your thoughts? You're an executive in this very global company, similar to Unilever and P&G, big stretch, big supply chain, lots of positive impacts and, and ability to reach lots of people. How are you seeing the world at this moment? Yeah, for me, when you think about the SDGs, right, and you think about what they stand for, you know, it's really about improving the human condition. And I can think of for us and for most companies, what the expectations on for companies to participate in what really are these noble goals, but also what companies can precisely do, what they can practically do and what they can uniquely do. So when we talk about partnerships and we talk about partnering with other agencies, it really was what can the company bring to bear? What can the company do? And for us, you know, we look for organizations that can help us do what we do, but scale it, scale it in a way that we can't do. So when we work with the United Nations Institute of Training and Research, we take evidence-based practices, and then we work with UNITAR on things like road safety, things that affect people all around the world. And we say, let's scale that in a way that we as one company cannot do, 
But Unitar does. They're the experts in scaling. They're the experts in getting that message around the world and that type of training. And we can provide the evidence-backed research, but they can provide what they're great at. And it's that partnership that really drives us forward about where we stand in connection with helping with the SDGs. Um, I was thrilled to hear about the Unitar partnership. My daughter's about to get her license in a couple of months, so road safety is important to me. What's your thoughts? Because I think as Rob and, and Krista referenced that the world is changing, the role of business is growing. How do we actually integrate the SDGs and the mindset that is into what you're doing at a corporate strategy level at ABN? How do you approach that? Yeah, this is a great question because I get this all the time from all different stakeholders. I get it from colleagues. I get it from investors. I get it from NGOs. And it gets to all different types of stakeholders. And they basically ask me, how does it fit into your strategy? And what I tell them is, you know, this isn't a matter of us fitting something in. We're not trying to carve something out. We're not trying to squeeze something in. We're not trying to push something. For us, if you think about something like sustainability, it's the heart of what we do. And I can say that because if you think about it, no water, no beer. This isn't a matter of, I'd like to have this. This isn't a matter of, oh, it'd be really great for someone else to have, or I'd really like to help someone else. That's the core of our business. And by the way, it's not just in the four corners of our breweries. It's how we interact with the community, how we interact with those around us. So the watershed is healthy. So we have great water because that great water leads to great beer. Rob, we're in this moment and we are halfway through the SDG timeline to 2030. It started in 2015. Uh, the Gates Foundation came out with a pretty hard-hitting report last week called the, the Halftime Report, an update on the global goals. It was a pretty pessimistic read. What's your sense of that assessment? What do we need to do to turn that around? I'm sure the UN is quite preoccupied with this. Yeah, absolutely. We are absolutely preoccupied with it. And, you know, as we look at it, and, you know, I read parts of the report and, you know, clearly a lot of it, it's evidence-based. They're very good at data at Gates and they have the statistics. And so you look at it and, you know, we've been set back by COVID. There's been a strong headwinds, political headwinds, including, again, I'll reference the, the war in Ukraine and the resulting food shortages and economic crises and energy shortages because of it. So we're looking at that. The Secretary General is talking about it every time he speaks, particularly focused on the climate agenda and the climate crisis, which is existential and, and really problematic. So I think we're all aware of the problems we're facing and how difficult it is. But what gives me hope around that is the fact that we're in New York City this week, coming to the UN General Assembly, the heads of state and government, because of COVID restrictions, are really the only folks on the UN campus this week. But everybody's still here. Private sectors here, civil societies here, philanthropies here. There are so many events going on around the city and every single place is focused on the sustainable development goals and how do we get back on track. It's amazing to me how the SDGs have truly become the framework that they were intended to be and that the way they were designed is that the common language between academia, or, you know, we work with academic institutions and business. And so it really gives me hope that we can use that common language to drive collaboration and partnerships. And I think we're seeing it, you know, all across the city this week here in New York, but all across all the conversations that we're having with many UN people are really thinking, okay, we have to take this and drive it forward. And so I'm really encouraged by the fact that the SDGs have taken on that role. I think we have a lot of work to do to get more people aware of them and understanding how that framework is set up. And again, I can talk about a couple of programs we're working on to sort of popularize them, one called Football for the Goals, where we're working with the global football or soccer community to really push out the messaging through that global sport. But we all sat down in the green room, the four of us, 
And I was amazed to see that I was the only one not wearing an SDG pin. <laughs> and, you know, in 2015, I was the only one wearing an SDG pin. But thankfully, here at ABM, they have a lot of them. So I, I, I was able to get one. So thank you. You're such a trendsetter. And then when the crowd gets in, they're like, oh, no, it's not true. Right, so, right. so I think it is exciting, that level of all hands on deck approach, which I think will come. And I think when the Millennium Development Goals transpired from Kofi Annan, the dear Secretary General that passed away, but a real leader in driving this agenda forward, started in 2000 and ended in 2015. I kind of recall halfway through a similar assessment, like we were in trouble. And I think, Krista, one of the nice things that we have that we didn't have then is that we have the private sector more engaged and we have this superpower called purpose, which has become a thing, an important thing, I think, in driving real impact. What's your sense of our collective journey on corporate purpose and where have we been and where we are now? And is there still more juice to squeeze from that lemon? <laughs> yeah, so good. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a lemon. It's sweeter than that, but no. <laughs> no, um, no it's, it's a good question because I think when we first started, I started this in 2014 and there was some talk about purpose and business, but I would do a search, you know, how many jobs have purpose in their job description or title? And that was never any for years and years. And then a couple of years ago, there were 20 chief purpose officers. And just last year, last September, I did a search. I couldn't believe there were a million jobs with purpose in their title or their job description. So that's the a good, million. a million. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it just exploded over a really short period of time, but that also, there's also a lot of confusion. There's a lot of noise in this space, right? So we're seeing what is purpose washing? What does it actually mean? And I think the time has come to really professionalize it, to set a standard as this is what it means if you are actually, if you have purpose in your title or your job description, these are the 10 things that you need to be working on. And we know nobody's there yet, but at least this is where we're all aiming so that it doesn't just become, you know, a marketing campaign because, you know, businesses that do that might get a bump in the short term, but people quickly see through it and, you know, can tank them. And I, I don't think that they're doing it intentionally. I think that they just don't know better. So if we can support that, I think that would be really good. At the same time, we have this and we see the public expectation for purpose growing and a sense that this is an important leadership attribute, both individually for, for executives, but also for brands and companies. There's at the same time this greenwashing risk and concern and discussion. How does this get factored in of companies becoming a little bit shy of talking or committing because of the potential greenwashing accusation? Well, I think that's good. <laughs> I mean, you should definitely understand what you're committing to and not commit to it if you're not really fully on board with it. So I think that's okay that people are starting to be hesitant. In fact, it's, I think it's actually quite a good thing. But I think that there's just generally confusion on how to move forward. And so that's why we do what we do to help people understand, okay, here's a company that's a best practice. This is something you can learn. Here are some durable patterns. And then we bring people together to be able to share those types of things exactly to this end because we don't have a lot of time and we don't have time to reinvent the wheel. So if we can share things, then, then that's really what we need to do. So that's what we do. <laughs> and the opposite of greenwashing is green hushing, which I think is also dangerous, right? Because I, I think there is a thirst and a need for us to be transparent, to talk about what we believe and what we're doing. And that visibility drives our performance probably more sharply too. So. And to share what didn't work. So, so often, you know, people will put that under the rug, you know, this didn't work, we're embarrassed. But what we're seeing with companies that are really at the forefront is that they share it broadly. Well, we tried this, it didn't work. And sometimes 
there's just a small tweak that can be done. Sometimes it can help others. And sometimes it actually can turn into a business opportunity in other ways. So there's just open communication. I think we live at a time where people are much more wanting that and much more forgiving of mistakes if you're transparent about it right from the beginning. And, and John, how, how are you navigating this? I mean, there's a whole question of like, you know, talking and walking and walking the walk and talking the talk. And how, how do you drive the authenticity through a very big conglomerate, which is challenging, right? Yeah. And, you know, also you're spread all over the world, right? There's different levels of people asking questions, right? And for us, you know, we're not in this. So we get the next A plus score. Sure. We want the next A plus score, but the metrics are changing. The metrics are consolidating. The metrics are looking at some things today, other things in the future. But for us, it's driving through as to what is authentic to us as a business. You know, we talked about the importance of water, right? We talked about the importance of sustainability to our core product, right? To what drives our financial results. But also, we're members of the community, right? And we know that we have a product, right? That we are trying to work with the community to say, how can we help you drive things like a reduction in the harmful use of alcohol? How can we also talk to you about the benefits right, that beer has to the economy, right? When we think about how many jobs are generated by beer, right? When we talk about beer, we're thinking about the full value chain. We often talk about from seed to sip, working with thousands of farmers around the world, right? Farmers who might be subsistence farmers today, but if we work with them with the crop that isn't traditionally brewed for beer in their country, we say, hey, let's work with you and we will brew for you a beer that is a local crop. Right. And we can work that and then maybe work with them to get a financial identity. All of a sudden, someone who's unbankable today, if we work with them about the blockchain, sign a contract with them, and now they have a history of financial performance, well, then they become bankable in the future. And putting that together, when you see your business as part of the broader industry, but more importantly, this whole value chain, you know, we talk about partnerships, but even in business, so few of us control 100%. Right? There are things we buy, there are ingredients we put in, there are folks we depend on for that. So the more we can see partnership in that vein, the truer we're going to be and whatever those scores will be, if we focus in on what's important to us, what's meaningful to us, we're going to make sure that we can deliver those by 2030. Do you see, is partnership a competitive advantage? Is it a new part of like a successful business attribute, do you think now? I do, right? Because when you think about a world economy, and when you think about folks who are involved in so many challenges today, right? When folks talk about interruptions in the supply chain, right? What better way to have an advantage, a competitive advantage, a business advantage, than to have those relationships with farmers all around the world? So maybe you have one issue in one country or one continent. What better way to try to solve that than working with farmers in another area and working with folks through that value chain that you already have a relationship. And also you have a trust too, right? That, well, the reason we're working with you, not because we're in the charity business, because we're not, we're working with you because it's good for us, right? But it's good for you. And holistically, you start to build on that. So I do think it's a competitive advantage. And I also think it's an advantage to attract talent. So much of what we do, we have 160,000 colleagues around the world Man, what we find now, people are asking questions about what, what does this company stand for? What is this company doing? What social issues are involved in? It's our colleagues, retention, attraction, and it's consumers, right? What does this brand stand for, right? What does this beer stand for? 
What does this company stand for? And of course, it's regulators as well. So all those questions, the more you're engaged on that, the bigger competitive advantage you'll have. Chris, I could just pick up on a couple of things that John said, I think that are really interesting. First of all, on that greenwashing, you know, sometimes we call it the UN blue washing, the UN blue with, uh, you know, organizations that try to work with us and partner with us. And I think that the one thing I'm saying is just greater commitment. I think there are more companies asking questions and coming to us in that way to what do we need to do to be able to work with the UN, you know, rather than just coming, you know, saying, oh, look at this great thing we're doing you should partner with us or collaborate with us. So I think that that collaboration is coming from both sides. I mean, we're trying to do it from the UN, but I do think the business is coming at it with a, with a different lens now to try and make sure that they're doing it right. Because I think as John said, it's good for business, yep. right? And, and I think that that's becoming clear. Also, you know, John was talking about really what is kind of a major global company working at a local level with the different products, the different, you know, the different beers at a local level and the issues are different in the different places they're produced. And I think that that's one thing that we're getting better at the UN as well is looking at, okay, it's a global agenda. SDGs are a global agenda, but they're going to be solved at the local level. It's going to be communities taking action with the private sector, with the companies that are around them, with their governments, both national and local, with their academic institutions that have great research and those kinds of things. And I think that's really, you know, we have changed the way we have our so-called country team set up to have partnership officers, communications officers there that can help make all of that happen because we know we have to do better at that level. And I think that that's something that, that we're all looking at and saying. So I think that's really critical. And it's a critical point. And we're all four people from the global north. And yet the majority of the population and the challenges and the opportunities are generally in the global south. You've got an event coming up this week, Kristen, to focus on Africa. What, what is your sense of what's happening in the global south on purpose? Is there the same sort of heat and energy and excitement around business leaders from the global south? A couple of years ago in 2020, we put out a letter, a global leadership letter, which was as we're looking to governments to build back better, what are some policies that we would recommend that governments put out to create an enabling environment, to level the playing field, to support the types of partnerships that you were talking about? And we had a group of CEOs sign the letter. And since that time, we've had 26 countries actually bring some aspect of that letter into legislation, many of those in those regions. And so we had a pretty audacious statement that even you could go so far as to create a fourth sector where you identify businesses that are purpose-led and they have special, you know, economic benefits to doing that. So we are seeing that. We know that with the development in Africa specifically, there's a lot of potential there. There's the potential to, you know, in many ways, but we have to get that right, right? We can't have the same type of development. So they have the opportunity to leapfrog over some of the legacy particularly energy infrastructure that we have. So that's what we'll be talking about in that specific session. But the overall event is about systems change and purpose-led systems change. So really looking at the interconnectivity between issues and identifying how as global organizations, the UN, we'll have people from the UN there, we have World Bank, we have business leaders. As we're looking at all of these things together, how can we identify strategic levers for systems change to be able to unlock some of these things? So... And back to that scale point that you made before, John, in many ways, part of the purpose conversation, the SDGs is also the ESG mainstreaming of this important piece of the puzzle where the financial sector has been engaged and interested in what's happening with companies. And it's also been a little bit more contentious and maybe we're at a 1.0 or 2.0 version. And there's another version of ESG probably coming, but lots of questions from investors that weren't being asked five, six years ago. 
How are you approaching that ESG conversation broadly? Yeah, very much so. What we've seen is really this evolution over the last several years of, you know, there are certain funds that will only invest if you meet a certain criteria. But even apart from those funds, we know that when we go and meet with investors, they want to know about what are we doing in connection with ESG. And they want to know where it is we're spending our resources, time, and attention on when it comes to what we can impact. Not like a laundry list of here are the issues of the day. Not like a political platform where you go in and say, I'm for this, I'm against this, I'm for this, I'm against this. But what resources that the company are you driving towards that solution? So we talk about our purpose being dreaming big, to create a future with more cheers. And what does that mean to people, right? Does it mean a more equitable future, a more inclusive future? But how can we drive that? Well, we have millions of what we call points of connections around the world. These are folks who sell our products in all different countries, right? You know, think of the retail or the mom and pop shop. We know in Latin America and Africa in particular, a lot of the mom and pops are actually moms. Female entrepreneurs, right? Opening up a very small business. And we interact with them, right? 30, 40% of the profitability from these very small stores are oftentimes from beer. So when we interact with them, it's a tremendous opportunity for us to do more than just sell the beer, right? We want them to thrive. We want them to succeed. And to do that, we can work with them on education about how to have a better business, how to drive a P&L, how to think about your business so it succeeds. But more importantly, what have others in your position done simple incremental steps to build their business so you can have a brighter future, so you can send your kids to school, so you can have a better life, so you can have what the whole idea of commerce should be getting for you, which is improving your life on an incremental basis so you have access to more and we can do that in the same app we sell them here on. So they can choose what they want and they can get a course on how best to run my business or maybe a financial education course. How do I control my expenses? What does it mean to have a P&L? All of that is something that we can drive because we have access to these folks and it's something that we do. Yes, it's good for us as well. We want them to thrive, but it's a way for us to have a more equitable future driving what we do. And how far are you down the journey of trying to define and measure and understand that impact at a macro level? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, in some case, millions probably, of queer touching. How do you get your arms around that level of impact overall? Yeah, it's such an important question, right? So when we go and we drive any social program, one of the things that we look to is we say, how do we measure it? And let me give a little different example. For years, and I've been in the beverage alcohol business for decades, right? And we all had a belief that certain programs worked that certain harm mitigation programs work. So if you could have a safe ride home, that would be a good thing. If you had a screening intervention by a doctor, that would be a good thing. If you had the ability to have a plan to get home before you went out drinking, that's a good thing. But no one had ever measured it. So we spent years, we finally stopped and we said, you know what, let's just measure it, right? And let's be transparent about it and let's publish it and we're not going to measure it. We're going to go to academic institutions all around the world. You put the baseline together. We'll show you what we're doing. We'll then see where we landed. And most importantly, we'll then choose the best ones. And what we did was we had pilots in six locations around the world. We finally got the evidence. Surprise, surprise. Didn't match up to everything we thought was going to happen to start. And we picked the top ones. And then we worked 78 different 
examples of that around the world in 24 countries now. Why do we pick those? Not because John Blood likes them, because I thought they were the best, because that's what the evidence said. That's what the data said. They had the most impact when it came to people's relationship with alcohol and how we could reduce road accidents, how we could reduce a number of things. So really, really happy with the idea of put the hat on and say, you know what, let's get the evidence out there and then just live with the results, however they may fall. Excellent. That's great. And it's fantastic that you're sharing that data and that evidence-based approach for others to drive that kind of change. So your impossibly long title, Rob, engagement, <laughs> collaboration, partnership, it covers the thing. You do a lot of partnership work naturally. We talked about kind of public campaigns as well that are important. What's your sense of how that whole ethos approach, you know, sensibility might evolve? And especially what do you need from business going forward? And when we hit the 2027 mark, where we're like three years to go, how do we drive this forward to hit the yeah, goals? Yeah, that, that's really important. And it's already evolving the way that the UN looks at how it works in the private sector particularly. And, you know, there's a lot of entry points. You know, the Global Compact, which is holding its thing event this week, is a main entry point in the UN system for private sector. All of the agency's funds program, all of it, super the UN has partnership offices and ways to work. So there are lots of opportunities there. The one thing that we're looking at, particularly from the Secretariat, and, and I'll be completely straightforward, we, we can be very difficult to have a formal partnership with. I mean, going back a little bit to you know, our concern about the, the blue washing or green washing and, and looking at due diligence and things like that. But we're very sensitive about the use of our logo, for example. We, you know, we have to be. And so the legal agreements that we put in place in terms of formal partnerships can be complicated and in some cases actually a little bit limited about what we can do together. So I think what we're looking at is more of a collaborative model. And I referenced the Verified Initiative earlier, which was the mis- and disinformation effort that Department of Global Communications put forward across the UN system, but with partners around the world, both global and local, where we said, look, this is a huge problem. People are not getting accurate information about how to take care of themselves within the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a health side, but if you're not getting accurate information, you're not going to know what to do. Wash your hands, you know, mask, all the things that we learned over time. And so within the Verified Initiative, we set up a model where we would work with collaborators around the world, local community organizations, major companies, academic institutions, medical professionals, and researchers who would come in and just amplify the messaging that we were taking out of the system, particularly WHO's scientific messaging to say, okay, this is accurate, this is fact-based, and it's the scientific norm of what we know and what we have right now, please push it out. And so we set up this campaign. The homepage was not a UN.org website. It was separate, shareverified.com. If anybody wants to have a look at it, it's less active now, of course, than it was in you know, 2020 and 2021. But you know, people just came and signed on to it and said, yes, we believe in this. This is important. We want to help you and we want to be part of this. And there's a whole list of folks who collaborated with us there. And, we, and that's the way we were recognizing the efforts before. forward. So becomes less of these super formal relationships where just organizations finding common cause and taking action and driving the change. And we're doing the same thing with what I referenced earlier, also football for the gold, where we're asking the global football soccer community to join us to raise and amplify the SDGs. And what we're asking the global football community to do is help people know about the SDGs, what they are to get to that 80% that don't know what the SDGs are and don't know how to take action. Help us amplify that, meeting people where they are. There are a lot more football fans than know what the SDGs are or follow what's happening at the UN General Assembly this week. And but we're also saying to those organizations to join us, drive the SDGs through your business models. No greenwashing, no bluewashing. You have to actually commit to taking action. No single-use plastic in stadiums. You know, watch your carbon footprint when you're flying and what you're doing. 
make sure you're looking at gender equity with all that you do within your organization. And so he launched that on July 6th with UEFA, just at the opening of the Women's Euro, which we wanted to make sure that we're like, this is about women's football, not just men's. And so we wanted to launch it at a women's event. And, you know, we're continuing to get more and more entities joining us and becoming part of this, including one of my colleagues is actually in Kuala Lumpur launching the announcement of FIFPRO, which was the Global Football Players Union, represents 60,000 players around the world. They're joining on. And so my colleague is there with them at their Asia event to announce that they're becoming part of it because obviously the players are an important part of it and, and, and having them on board is critical because with no players, there's no game. So <laughs> we're making sure they're part of it. So those are examples where we're saying, just join a movement, just be part of what we're trying to do. And we invite everyone to join. It sounds like a much more agile approach and, and probably out of necessity with the pandemic, but you're, you're building on that experience. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. Just, just letting know that people can join and be part of something that the UN's taking on and that the governments are taking on no matter what sector they're from and just be part of it, particularly because you're looking at something like football, we know that they reach people in ways that we just, we just can't. Yeah. Krista, you work with a lot of chief executives and you have for a while. Is it true that there are, like, are there real generational differences? I think more CEOs are coming from a more diverse background than the traditional. Does this make a difference? Is this a little bit of a booster rocket in driving more change than companies or is it, you know? No, no, definitely. I think we're seeing a lot of diversity. I mean, the time that somebody is a CEO has been shortening, you know, it used to be 30 years, I guess somebody would sit in that role and now it's down to seven, maybe, gosh, I think maybe five. (laughs) I can't. So it's it's shortening, yeah, it's shortening. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is from the board perspective, when you're looking for the CEO, what are you looking for from a talent pool perspective? So what do they need to know now? And so making sure that the leader is competent about climate, understands that, you know, a lot of the things that, that John was talking about, like how do you actually drive these things forward by using what's core to the business and then partnering with organization, these types of things. It's a very different mindset. It's a different approach. And, and we are starting to see a lot of diversity there. So yeah, definitely it's changing. So, and I think it will continue to change. We need those diverse voices to be able to address these things. And, and John, in your time here at AB InBev, have you seen the relationship between the executive team and the board evolve too? Has there been a difference in how they're understanding these issues or being interested or curious or engaged or asking different kinds of questions than they were before? Yeah, and I think it's one of the biggest changes we've seen from, uh, I'm also the company secretary. So from a company secretarial standpoint, I think one of the biggest changes we've seen for public companies in the last several years is how management and how the board interact with decisions like, what are we going to do about ESG? What are we going to do about sustainability? Everyone reads the paper or I say everyone gets the news feed, although I understand now people get different news feeds depending on where you go on, but nonetheless, right, we can still see what's in the paper, right? We can still see what's on the news feed. We can still see what's on social media. And questions come up with how do we as a company decide when to engage, on what issues, and how to engage? And I think one of the key things for management to do is to have a clear understanding with the board about what framework are you going to use to understand when the company is going to speak on an issue, what the company is going to say on an issue, when the company is going to speak just internally, when the company is going to speak externally, and also how do you decide what issues? So very important to have that framework thought out, very important to share that framework with the board to get their feedback. Because it only works if both the board and management are on the same page. And then going forward, 
having the common sense and discipline to execute that framework in a way that isn't rigid, but in a way that allows you to respond to what the issues are going forward and what issues are true to you as a company, where it's authentic to you, where you can make a difference, where it's important to you and your stakeholders, and most importantly, where you're not just talking about every issue every day, everywhere, but you're focused on what you're doing so you can actually have an impact in those areas. And that's kind of illumination of all these issues and the flexibility required in a hyper-paced world is really critical. And these skills, like the agility skills, the important one, I think we're collectively learning. Okay, let's do a rapid one last question for all three of you. We're in this moment. We're halfway to fulfilling the SDGs, you know, fingers crossed. What are you most excited and optimistic about in the next year or two? What are you really hopeful for? Yeah, I just see the communities coming together and doing what they can do. To John's point, you know, not every organization can do everything. There's 17 SDGs, but they are interconnected. Everyone can take on and work in a space that they can really see action and see outcomes. And I think impact, and I think that's what's important is everyone doing it where they can and when they can. And I think people are recognizing that. And I'll just go back to the fact that, you know, just seeing the, the energy around New York City, around the SDGs is, is really encouraging. I think there's real hope. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, but I really think that there's communities coming together to take action both at the global level. I mean, I feel like we're here in New York, the UN, we talk around policy issues and global issues, but I really see it change at the local level. And I think that's what I'm feeling the best about is these collaborations coming together at the local level. You can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's important <laughs> from Frank Sinatra. Kristen, what are you hopeful about? No, I'm hopeful. It feels like things are turning. Like we used to have the discussion about climate issues. You have to connect the dots between climate issues and economic issues. I think that we're not having that discussion anymore. I think that people are starting to really move towards this. And I love that there's resources like the one, one of the questions I get all the time from individuals is like, what can I as an individual do? And there's constantly these resources being, you know, that now we can refer people to because people want to get involved. So I'm very hopeful about that. John, your thoughts? You know, really optimistic that, you know, we are facing the brutal facts. And I say we collectively, businesses, NGOs, the UN, everyone's facing the fact that there's more to do. We have more gaps to close. But the optimism comes from folks diving into it and recognizing that and the impatience too, right? We need to move quicker. We need to move faster. And that gives me a lot of optimism. And then the generation coming up, right? of being so vocal about it, right? Of also challenging folks to say, hey, this is important, we need to deal with it. That combination of facing it head on, a generation really at the top of their lungs talking about it, and the other generations embracing that saying, you know what, you're right, we need to deal with it. That gives me the optimism. Sure, the challenges are there, man, but what a great combination to have that to move forward and try to get where we need to be. A decade of action and a decade of activism working side by side in some ways. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you, Krista. Thank you, John. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you to the hundreds of you listening online. We appreciate it. Wishing you all the best and thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. My thanks to Chris Coulter, John Blood, Rob Skinner, and Krista Jory for being featured on our podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did when we were all live in person. It is amazing to witness the power of partnerships and collaboration to elevate the SDGs and to make a lasting impact and lift up our people and communities. And of course, a big thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ab-inbev.com 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us. And if you think others will enjoy it too, please share. We are AB InBabs. This is Elise Puma from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast. Nor does AB InBev offer any sort of legal, financial, or other advice in the podcast content. Any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers, and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.